0: Welcome to Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshaldon. This summer we will be reissuing our all-time top 10 episodes. We hope you enjoy revisiting these episodes with us. The Witness to Yesterday team is working hard and we're excited to bring you the next season in September 2023. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. For a long time in Canada, depending on what language you spoke at home, you either loved James Wolfe or you hated him. Growing up in Montreal, I can't remember when I first encountered the name, but I can tell you that my teacher, whoever she was, gave me the sense that this was someone who had done my people a lot of harm a long time ago. I'm sure that's not what was said in the English schools. Today, even in Quebec, James Wolfe is a subject of grudging respect. After all, he was the winner. The losers were mostly French soldiers and they either died or left Quebec City soon after the great confrontation that took place on the Plains of Abraham, just west of the walls of Quebec City, on that fateful morning of September 13th, 1759. A few years ago, the Champlain Society commissioned Larry Ostola, an expert on the British Army in Canada during the late 18th century, to create a volume of key letters Wolfe wrote to his parents. The book is entitled, Your Most Obedient and Affectionate Son, James Wolfe's Letters to His Parents, 1740 to 1759. It It is now ready for release as the Champlain Society's 2021 book, it's a wonderful tome, and to discuss what went into the whole task of putting it together, we reached Dr. Ossola at his office near Carlton Place in Ontario. Larry, welcome to Witness to Yesterday.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Patrice. It's a real pleasure to be with you this afternoon.
0: Larry, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. Uh, I have to ask, what happened to James Wolfe on that day, September 13th, 1759?
1: Well, I can recall first hearing about the events of the Plains of Abraham in September the 13th in one of my first history classes in elementary school. And there was really a lot that happened on that day, but let me try and give you a bit of a condensed version. So in the early morning hours of September the 13th, 1759, Several thousand British troops under the command of Major General James Wolfe embarked in small boats and made their way uh, down the St. Lawrence River to a designated landing spot at a place called the Anse au Foulon, which is just west of Quebec. Uh, So the British troops landed and they managed to disperse a small French detachment and they made their way up a very steep incline to some open ground west of the city, which was known locally as Les Plains d'Abraham, the Plains of Abraham. And when the French heard that the British had actually arrived on the plains, there was, first of all, disbelief. Uh, but when it was confirmed that that was actually what happened, the French quickly assembled their forces and hastily began moving to the Plains of Abraham to confront Wolfe and his forces. Uh, Now, there are a number of accounts with respect to what actually happened, but it appears that as the French advanced... They hastily discharged their muskets in a bit of confusion, but the British were more patient. They waited until the French were a short distance away and then then unleashed what has been described as an absolutely devastating volley firing on the French. And after about 20 to 30 minutes, perhaps, uh, the French retired and the British were left in possession of the field. So it happened very quickly. Uh, After the battle, uh, Quebec capitulated several days later, but in terms of Wolfe, he was apparently positioned on the right of the British line, and during the engagement, which again only lasted a short time, he was wounded three times. Once in the wrist, once in the stomach, and once in the breast, and apparently it was that third wound that proved fatal. And uh, there was an officer serving with the army that day on the Plains of Abraham named John Knox. And John Knox left us with what is considered to be a pretty reliable account of Wolfe's last moments on the Plains of Abraham. And if I could, I'd like to share that with you and your listeners right now. So this is what Knox writes. He says, after our late worthy general of renowned memory was carried off wounded to the rear of the front line, he desired those that were about him to lay him down. Being asked if he would have a surgeon, he replied, "'It is needless. It is all over with me.' One of the men cried out, "'They run! See how they run!' "'Who runs?' demanded our hero with a great earnestness, like a person roused from sleep. The officer answered, "'The enemy, sir! Egad, They give way everywhere!' Thereupon the general rejoined, "'Go, one of you, my lads, to Colonel Burton!' tell him to march Webb's regiment with all speed down to Charles River to cut off the retreat of the fugitives from the bridge. Then, turning on his side, he added, now God be praised, I will die in peace, and thus expired. He's 32 years old. He's 32 years old, and I can tell you that uh, when news of the victory at Quebec arrived in England, it caused an absolute sensation. Uh, There were public celebrations because in the view of the public, uh, against all odds, Wolfe had achieved a victory which was unexpected at Quebec and he became almost a national hero, well not almost, he became a national hero overnight. He delivered a major victory and he died doing it. And so uh, in the book I describe uh, the commemorations and the the memorialization of Wolfe that took place almost immediately. Uh, There was a a monument erected to his memory in Westminster Abbey. There were public celebrations. Medals were struck. In 1771, the Anglo-American artist Benjamin West produced a major canvas called The Death of General Wolfe, which is a highly romanticized and inaccurate version of his last moments. But it it speaks to the way Wolfe was seen and the way his victory was seen uh, in the popular imagination. And I thought it would be interesting to refer a little bit to that in the book before getting to the real man as described in, in the letters that he wrote to his parents.
0: Now, you know, I'm almost tempted to say this is like Horatio Nelson. But when this happened, Horatio Nelson was a year old. I mean, this is long before Horatio Nelson.
1: Well, here's a story for you. Um, in, in one of the recent biographies of Wolf that was produced, uh, there's a fascinating story that uh, Horatio Nelson... Was in the Caribbean, and while he was, uh, uh, you know, a Commodore in the Caribbean, he actually met an officer who had commanded Wolfe's Light Infantry on the Plains of Abraham, who apparently was quite fond of recounting stories of the battle. And so, there's a direct connection uh, between the story of Wolfe and then uh, the story of Nelson, which is kind of fascinating.
0: Okay, Larry. So, tell us a little bit more about uh, his life. This young uh, 32-year-old. Uh, what brought him to the
1: St. Lawrence in the first place? Well, it was, uh, in the words of the Beatles, I guess you could say, it was a long and winding road. <laughs> um, he, was, he was born in England in, in a small village called Westerham in Kent, south of London, in 1727. And uh, he was the son of Edward Wolfe, uh, who was a career soldier, and Henrietta Thompson, uh, look, reading the letters uh, and reading the biographies that have been done, I would characterize Wolfe's background as being solidly middle or upper middle class. Now, the English author, author Daniel Defoe, in the early 18th century, uh, developed a model of the English social hierarchy and divided the population into categories. And uh, I think that the Wolfs would have formed part of what he would describe as the middling sort who lived well. Uh, so certainly very comfortably. And it's really not surprising that James Wolfe embarks on a career as a soldier. His father, as I mentioned, was a soldier. His uncle was a soldier. His brother would join him in the army. And so he really had uh, a military background in his family, which no doubt exercised a lot of influence on his career choice. So he joins the army uh, he uh, moves, and this is very interesting in the context of his career, he moves very rapidly through the ranks. In 1741, he's a junior officer, and nine years later, he's a lieutenant colonel who's responsible for a battalion of, uh, or a regiment of foot in the British Army. And in 1759, he's a major general in America. And so that was really uh, advancement at quite a quick rate. And it's also interesting to note that uh, Wolfe was not some kind of a dilettante. He was an experienced professional soldier who at a very young age had participated in a number of engagements uh, on the continent and in Scotland. And so in 1743... He participated in the Battle of Dettingen, which which took place during the War of the Austrian Succession. He also participated in the Battle of Lauffelt in 1747. And he participated in the suppression of the Jacobite Rebellion in Scotland in 1745 and was present at the Battle of Falkirk as well as at the decisive Battle of Culloden in 1746, Now, one of the things that struck me uh, was Wolfe didn't write much about his experiences during those engagements, very little, but he did make uh, a reference to his brother who was also at the Battle of Dettingen in 1743, and what I found surprising was how matter-of-fact he was about what must have been a terrifying baptism of fire on an 18th century battlefield. So this is what he writes about his brother and about his experience at the Battle of Dettingen. I sometimes thought I had lost poor Ned when I saw men's arms, legs, and heads beat off close by him. He is called old soldier and very deservingly. A horse I rid of the colonels at the first attack was shot in one of his hinder legs and threw me. So I was obliged to do duty of adjutant, all that, and the next day on foot in a pair of heavy boots. I lost with the horse furniture and pistols, which cost me 10 ducats. But three days after the battle, got the horse again with the ball in him, and he is now almost well again, but without any furniture of pistols. <laughs> you just went through a battle. And he's worried about his equipment. <laughs> And, and, and for a 16-year-old to be so matter-of-fact about some of the horrifying things he must have seen is, is quite astonishing, at least it was to me. So what brings him to North America, the Seven Year War? Prior to the Seven Years' War, there's a detour in Scotland. So Wolfe had been in Scotland, then he goes to the continent, then he goes back to serve in garrison at a number of places in Scotland. Uh, prior to moving to the south of England with his regiment, Uh, as a new threat of war with France looms on the horizon. And so his next serious action, and this is now very much in the context of the Seven Years' War, which had broken out, occurs in the assault, or what was intended to be the assault on La Rochelle, France in 1757. It was intended to be an amphibious assault, but it actually ended in failure, and Wolfe actually served on that expedition, Now, following La Rochelle, uh, he then uh, served at the expedition against Louisbourg, uh, Louisbourg in Cape Breton in 1758 and passed through Halifax and then finally winds up in Quebec as Major General in 1759. And there's an important point to make, and I alluded to it earlier. You sometimes hear uh, or read uh, a little bit of a caricature of officers at the time who were sort of aristocratic dilettantes or fops who knew very little about what they were doing. And in Wolfe's case, and in the case of many other serving officers, nothing could be farther from the truth. He was a battle-tested professional soldier who took his profession very seriously and and was continuously seeking means of improving himself. And the other aspect that's interesting with respect to his career is the military profession at the time was a bit of a social leveler. So his career gave him access to individuals of the highest social rank, including William Duke of Cumberland, who was a son of King George II, uh, Lord George Sackville, another aristocrat, and Lord Burry. And both of the latter two would play very important roles in Wolfe's career and patronage uh, on their part and on the part of others was to play a role in his advancement in the army. And it wasn't uncommon in the 18th century, but clearly his, his sponsors and his patrons uh, saw something in him which merited some attention. And just on that point, Uh, I'll give you an example of a little bit of what might have been that patronage at work. So after the failure at La Rochelle, uh, there was going to be a public inquiry where Wolfe was called to testify, uh, but he was promoted to colonel by the king at the very same time as this was going on. And so this is what he writes. Mr. Fisher writes me word that the king has been pleased to give me the rank of colonel, which at this time is, be- is more to be prized than at any other because it carries with it a favor- favorable appearance as to my conduct upon this late expedition and an acceptance of my good intentions. I am something indebted to Sir Edward Hawke for having spoken advantageously to Lord Anson, who took the trouble to repeat it to the king. So clearly he had some influence working in his favor. So he's, uh,
0: so to summarize... Um... Comes from a military family, uh, fights the good fights, is a proficient professional, and he's recognized and he's boosted by patronage, but he's a man with talent. This is not just an accident. And he winds up in North America because uh, the Seven Year Wars uh, is being fought, and um, the fate of the continent is, is being decided between France and, and England. So he's an important man sent to do an important job uh, defending the British Empire and uh, hopefully defeating the French Empire, which he will succeed in doing. Now, you describe and you've annotated all the letters that he wrote to his parents. Uh, tell us about them. How would you describe those letters?
1: Well, and first, let me say, Patrice, that it is always, as you as you well know, and as many others well know, it is always a pleasure and a privilege to be able to work with original historical documents. And I'll, you know, uh, I've mentioned this to others. uh, It's it's almost like you're transported into another world and you get an insight ...into another time and another place and another individual, and so that's always a pleasure. But the collection of James Wolfe letters consists of 229 letters, uh, which were held for many years in a private collection in the United Kingdom. Uh, And they were purchased at auction by the University of Toronto with some financial assistance in 2013... And Basically, while there are a few exceptions, and there's one wonderful letter that Wolfe writes to his brother Edward, uh, by and large, the vast majority of the letters were written to his mother and his father, and uh, he wrote to them regularly. His first letter was written in 1740, when he was 13 years of age, and if you can imagine this, he's 13 years of age, and he's preparing to embark as part of a British expedition with his father against the Spanish at Cartagena in present-day Colombia. And illness finally presented, prevented him from going, but that was a good thing because the expedition ended in disaster. But that was his first letter. And his last letter was written two weeks before his death to his mother from the banks of the River St. Lawrence overlooking Quebec. So the letters themselves, physically speaking, they're bound in a single volume and they're written on sheets of paper with a quill pen and are very well written. But what was interesting is there's no evidence system of punctuation or capitalization or abbreviation or paragraphs or anything like that. And so that made it a bit of a challenge sometimes to try and tell what might have been a period or a colon or a semicolon and what was actually a drop of ink from a quill pen. Uh, But all that to say that it was a fascinating experience.
0: Do we have the answers he would have received from his parents?
1: No, unfortunately, we do not. And that's uh, something that I also point out in the volume is that when you're reading uh, a letter going to someone, you're basically seeing one half of a written conversation. And so occasionally he makes allusions or comments or observations that are a little difficult to to decipher because you don't know what the point was that was made originally. So there was a bit of detective work involved in trying to figure out exactly what he was getting at in some of the letters that he was writing to his parents.
0: How would you describe his calligraphy? I mean, I've seen horrific stuff coming out of the 18th century.
1: I'd have to say, so I've gone through 18th century documents before, and I'd have to say that by and large, it was pretty good, and it was pretty decipherable. Uh, It was interesting, though, because I I tried to look at the letters and figure out, okay, what, what letters do I think he was trying to write in a hurry and yes. would, that have, would that have affected his use of the quill? Uh, but generally speaking, once you got used to his style of writing and you began to pick up on certain letters, then deciphering the letters and and transcribing them became somewhat easier. The one thing that's, that's important is that uh, these letters are highly personal. Uh, one of his biographers, early biographers, pointed out that these were not meant to be read by anyone except the person who received them, and they're very different from his military correspondence, which would have been, by by definition, official and very formal. Uh, In the letters, he covers a fascinating variety of topics. He talks about health. He talks about some of the remedies for different ailments. He talks about love and marriage, his prospects for advancement in the army, and some of the financial challenges that he faced, which was one interesting point. And also, there were significant differences between the content for his mother and his father. And that might have been a a function of their age and of their interests, uh, and I think definitely of their interests. But to give you a couple of short examples, he writes a great deal about his health. And this really reflects the state of medical knowledge in the 18th century. He's writing to his, uh, his father, and he says, He says he has had a rheumatic scurvy, something like mine, and that mercury does wonders in his disorder and advises me to the use of it. Sure, if I was to follow his counsel, we should misapply that noble specific. I had begun to use soap to cleanse the passages in the kidneys and all the urinary channels, which are at present a little clogged. This, with the aid of some very good Rhenish wine from Aberdeen, must infallibly set everything to rights. And relieve me from the apprehensions of future lacerations and incisions. Gosh. <laughs> so so that's that's on health. But but as I but as I mentioned, the other surprise to me, because I knew that officers were not terribly well paid, and we can discuss that at greater length, but he was also financially challenged. And at one point he writes to his mother and he described his financial situation as follows, and this was a bit of a surprise. We are in expectation of sudden orders for some service, which it is, we know not. If we are ordered on board the fleet, either to cruise or to Virginia, it will be absolutely necessary that I get myself furnished with a quantity of coarse shirts. And how to do it? I am really at a loss. And if we were to take the field, I should be wholly ruined. This is the state of my affairs. I am 8 and 20 years of age, a lieutenant colonel of foot, And I cannot say that I am master of 50 pounds or have credit for that sum in the world. Mm. Again, a surprise.
0: Let's talk about how much money this man is earning. He's an officer in the King's Army in the middle 1700s. It's not an easy job. You've described that. How
1: how much is he getting paid? Well, I... I don't have the exact salary of a Lieutenant Colonel LaFoot to give you, suffice to say that clearly officers were uh, much much better compensated than the ordinary rank and file were, Uh, but what is key to underline is that officers also had a great many obligations which drew heavily on their salary. So you're talking about equipment, you're talking about uniform items, you're talking about tentage, you're talking about horses, pistols, swords, you're talking about servants, uh, you're talking about transportation for your baggage. There are a great many expenses which officers like Wolfe incurred at the time, which left them at the end of the day uh, with very little ready money to spend on other things. And I think that's really what Wolfe is highlighting in his letter.
0: And yet the military is seen as some sort of a social elevator, an opportunity to raise one's profile so that perhaps after you do retire from the military, if you're lucky enough to retire from the military, you might get access again through patronage to a better better position in society. Is that the calculation?
1: Uh, Quite possibly. Uh, You could could, uh, uh, receive a, a higher rank, potentially depending on the nature of your service. A peerage, for example, uh, and so that was part of it. But uh, I think in Wolfe's case, and and we'll we'll have an opportunity to discuss this as well. He was highly motivated uh, by a sense of duty, duty to his country and duty to his sovereign, and uh, in fact uh, that comes out clearly in many of the letters that he actually wrote. Last fall,
0: you kindly wrote a text for findings, the Champlain Society blog. It was a letter Wolfe wrote in 1749 when he was age 22, and he had just assumed some sort of military command in Nova Scotia. What attracted you to that letter?
1: I had a great, uh, a great time producing that item for the blog. And so the letter was reproduced in full. But what actually struck me was one particular paragraph in the letter. And what struck me was uh, Wolf was uh, 22 years of age when he wrote it. And what happened was the lieutenant colonel of his regiment, Edward Cornwallis, was sent to take command in Nova Scotia. And so Wolfe was left in charge of the battalion, which was a major responsibility and would, would have been quite a burden for him to assume. And so in this excerpt from the letter, he, he gives his perception of the responsibilities of a commander, the burdens of a commander, and he is incredibly introspective with respect to his own immaturity and his own age. And so the excerpt that, uh, that most spoke to me was the following. Lord George Sackville, or tomorrow Lord George Sackville goes away, and I take upon me the difficult and troublesome employment of a commander. You can't conceive how hard a thing it is to keep the passions within bounds when authority and immaturity go together, to endeavor at a character that has every opposition from within, and that the very condition of the blood is a sufficient obstacle to... Fancy you see one that must do justice to both good and bad, reward and punish with an equal unbiased hand, one that is to reconcile the severity of discipline to the dictates of humanity, one that must study the tempers and dispositions of many men in order to make their situation easy and agreeable to them and should endeavor to oblige all without partiality, a mark set up for everybody to observe and judge of, And last of all, suppose be employed in discouraging vice and recommending the reverse at the turbulent age of 23. When it is possible, I may have as great a propensity that way as any of the men that I converse with. So when I read that, I was totally struck by it because first, many of the points that he raises would be recognized if put in contemporary terms to any leader today. Uh, from things like self-control and a sense of fairness to judgment and the setting of an appropriate example, or what you might refer to today as the modeling of behavior. And all of this uh, from a 22-year-old who had just been placed in charge of a battalion of infantry.
0: It's telling of his sense of the burden of leadership, isn't it?
1: It very much is. And he understood it at a very young age. And he understood uh, what was expected of him in terms of the way in which he would perceive and how he was required to behave uh, in consequence.
0: Well, you know, it's, all, it's often said that great leaders know themselves best and uh, act accordingly. They understand their strengths and weaknesses. And James Wolfe, at age 22, was already quite insightful about his own, his own limits, his own abilities, his characteristics, his personal characteristics.
1: Yeah, there was almost um, uh, what I refer to as a brooding, introspective side to his character. And this might have reflected the fact that, you know, he was in garrison in small towns in various places, uh, you know, in the evening with time on his hands. And he had time to reflect uh, not only on himself, but uh, on what I might refer to as the human condition. And he, he was a thinker and he gave a lot of thought to subjects like that. Do you have another favorite letter, Larry? Well... I can't say that I have one favorite, but I'll tell you what, uh, there were a great many that I really enjoyed. And if you bear with me, what I would like to do is provide you and your listeners with a bit of a wolf medley. (laughs) Okay. Rather than me attempt to describe what he said, I'd like him to speak for himself and I'd like you to hear from him directly. And so I have a number of short excerpts, which I'll just briefly introduce. Delightful. So in the first excerpt that I'm going to read, he's writing to his mother and he's exhibiting a poetic or a literary side, and he's comparing women to stars in the sky. So here we go. I don't feel the least disposition to change, but if ever I do, it shall be upon the plan prescribed by her. I will look where she points, but I must warn her, there are little wandering stars, a very bright aspect at first, whose beauty and light are soon obscured and will hardly bear a close inspection. There are others of a nobler nature, fixed and permanent, upon whose friendly aid and guidance a traveler may depend. Now, to distinguish between these heavenly bodies requires a pretty good telescope and strong sight."
0: So you're telling us uh, that uh, James Wolfe was a lifelong bachelor and there was a good reason for it.
1: Actually, well, that's another we – could, we could get into a whole other discussion on his views of marriage, but uh, there, there, was, there, was, there was a lot of interesting comments on love and marriage and that sometimes he was ambivalent and other times he was not. But um, there's another really interesting one. Go ahead. Uh, because occasionally the British army was called upon domestically to provide aid to the civil, civil power. So if there was a risk of civil unrest, the troops could be called out by a local magistrate to, 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 uh, to keep order. And so Wolfe was with uh, his regiment in Gloucestershire. And there was the threat that there would be some public disorder on the part of some local weavers And Wolf expresses his view of what he might be required to do. And it might be a little surprising given that he was an officer in the army. This is what he has to say. So the obstinacy of the poor half-starved weavers of broadcloth that inhabit this extraordinary country is very surprising. They beg about the country for food because they say the masters have beat down the wages too low to live upon. And I believe it is a just complaint. Those who are most oppressed have seized the tools and broke the looms of others that would work if they could. I am afraid they will proceed to some extravagancies and force the magistrate to make use of our weapons against them, which would give me a great deal of concern. So clearly he was not at all anxious to be called out in aid of the civil power. And then finally, uh, my final selection, and uh, it's been reproduced many times, is Wolfe's last letter to his mother from Quebec. And uh, it's a little poignant because, of course, she would never hear from him again. And he had been outside Quebec after a summer of frustration and was about about to take the gamble that would uh, launch his troops to the Plains of Abraham about two weeks later. And so this is what he writes to his mother. Dear Madam... My writing to you will convince you that no personal evils, worse than defeats and disappointments, have fallen upon me. The enemy puts nothing to risk and I can't in conscience put the whole army to risk. My antagonist has wisely shut himself up in inaccessible entrenchments so that I can't get at him without spilling a torrent of blood and that perhaps to little purpose. The Marquis de Montcalm is at the head of a great number of bad soldiers and I am at the head of a small number of good ones that wish for nothing so much as to fight him. But the wary old fellow avoids an action doubtful of the behavior of his army. People must be of the profession to understand the disadvantages and difficulties we labor under arising from the uncommon natural strength of the country. I wish you much health and am, dear madam, your obedient and affectionate son, James Wolfe, Banks of the River St. Lawrence, 31st August, 1759. And two weeks later, as we've discussed, he would lose his life on the Plains of Abraham.
0: Boy, that letter tells me that um, clearly he was preparing for battle. It's, again, worth remembering that he chose not the easy route to Quebec. Uh, Landing below the, uh, the, the Plains of Abraham, I mean, he was putting his army... Uh, through great difficulty, they had to climb that infamous falaise, the wall, uh, to get to the plains. I mean, this it's, the letter strikes me as, 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 as very compelling in that he knows that um, Montcalm is dangerous, but he's also confident that his troops will find a way to uh, outfox the, the, uh, the Frenchman.
1: Well, I think there's no doubt that uh, that Wolfe had a great deal of confidence in his army and in his troops. And that's, in fact, what he was hoping, was that Montcalm would come out from behind his inaccessible entrenchments and meet the British army in the open field. And that is, in fact, uh, what actually happened. And that's what led to the outcome on the 13th of September, 1759. What surprised you the
0: most about Wolf? After, after you've gone through uh, the letters and, again, you're, you're transcribing, you're annotating, you bring your, 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 your education and your deep knowledge of, of these conditions uh, to bear in your notes in the book. But what surprised you the most about Wolf?
1: There, there were a number of things, Petrus, that emerged from his letters, and, uh, and the first is something that we've already briefly discussed, which is his high degree of introspection and self-possession. Uh, he was clearly very thoughtful, and he spent a lot of time reflecting on his situation, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, was a bit of a student of the human condition. But another surprise, and I learned uh, through the research that I carried out in, in producing the volume, uh, the surprise was the deference that uh, he showed his parents He was absolutely devoted to them and their welfare and deferred to them in matters of his life and his career in a way which people might find hard to understand today, but which was apparently quite common uh, in England in the 18th century where parents continued uh, to exert uh, a significant influence on the lives of their children uh, for quite some time. And so Wolfe definitely falls into that category. And uh, the other thing that struck me was his uh, equanimity with respect to his eventual fate. Uh, and this, there are a number uh, of excerpts in his letters where he's almost prescient about, about what will eventually happen to him. Uh, but I'll give you a sense of that by reading an excerpt uh, where he talks about uh, the possibility of his eventual fate. And he also touches on another aspect, which I alluded to, which is, his sense of the duty he owed his country and his sovereign. For my part, I am determined never to give myself a moment's concern about the nature of the duty which his majesty is pleased to order us upon, and whether it be by sea or by land, that we are to act in obedience to his commands. I hope we shall conduct ourselves so as to deserve his approbation. It will be sufficient comfort to you two, as far as my person is concerned, at least it will be a reasonable consolation to reflect that the power which has hitherto preserved me may, if it be his pleasure, continue to do so. If not, that it is but a few days or a few years, more or less, and that those who perish in their duty and in the service of their country die honorably. I hope I shall have resolution and firmness enough to meet every appearance of danger without great concern and not be over solicitous about the event.
0: What does this tell you about his outlook on life? I mean, what shaped his outlook? I mean, his military career, clearly that shapes a man's view of life. You mentioned his parents, but you also mentioned the sense of duty earlier. I mean, is it a a triangulation, family, military, and and, and sovereign that shapes his outlook?
1: Well, I, I very much believe so having read his letters uh the 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 factors that i think most shaped uh, his life uh, were what you one of the ones that we've talked about his sense of obligation uh, to his parents and the duty that he owed them and this comes through repeatedly uh his sense of honor and patriot patriotism uh and what was as we heard in the last excerpt what was expected of him as a soldier of the king and there were instances where his temper came through when for example uh in the case of a naval expedition that was to relieve the uh, the island of Menorca it went wrong and Wolf uh, gave gave vent to his temper and uh, absolutely displayed displayed a great deal of scorn uh, for the admiral who was in charge of the relief Minorca. and his patriotism was very clear in, the, in that particular excerpt and then the other one which we haven't touched on is the notion that occurs repeatedly in his correspondence that the time that we have should be productively employed improving or perfecting oneself. And this is reflected in many of the pursuits that he engaged in in his spare time. He took fencing lessons, dancing lessons, riding lessons, he studied Latin, he studied, studied mathematics, and he studied French. In fact, in 1752, and this is fascinating. He had the opportunity uh, to make a brief trip to Paris, well, a trip of several months to Paris, uh, and he took French lessons and riding lessons and fencing and da- dancing lessons and went, actually went to Versailles in the company of the English ambassador where he was introduced to Louis XV and the royal family and was was seated next to the Marquise de Pompadour, Madame Pompadour, and had the opportunity to meet her at her toilette. And I thought to myself... <laughs> I thought, to, I, I thought to myself as I was reading that, if Louis XV knew what was going to happen, he never would have let him leave Versailles.
0: No. History would have been very different. Larry, how do you think this volume is going to help people think about James Wolfe?
1: Wolfe had a, uh, a self-deprecating sense of humor, and uh, this came out in several of his letters. And in one letter, because uh, his parents had health issues, and he often tried to cheer them up, but in one letter that he was writing to his parents... He writes that uh, folks are surprised to see the meager, consumptive, decaying figure of the son when the father and the mother preserve such good looks, and people are not easily persuaded that I am one of the family. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's a small example of a sense of humor which occasionally emerges in his correspondence.
0: Is there so? I mean, it's another dimension to the character that's uh, that's fascinating. Is there a message in here uh, for? Teachers or for
1: scholars more generally. Well, I think there's a number of messages, Patrice. And, and first, there, there's no denying the fact uh, that that Wolfe, through his actions and at the places where he was present, where, whether it be at Cape Breton and at the siege of Louisbourg in 1758, where he played and played an absolutely key role in reducing the fortress, and then the events at Quebec and the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. He played a key role in shaping Canada's history and not only Canada's history, but the, uh, the history of North America. It has been claimed that, uh, that once the French presence uh, was no longer a threat to the American colonists, that provided some imp- impetus to the eventual outbreak of the American Revolution. So I think that's a, a really an important point. But the second thing is we have to understand him on his terms. He was a dedicated, as we've, as we've discussed, he was a dedicated professional soldier performing his duty as he saw it uh, and as he understood it in the context of the 18th century. And the other point that I'd like to make is, and, you know, sometimes you hear that, uh, oh, well, things took place such a long time ago. How relevant could they possibly be? Uh, I would argue that despite the fact that these events took place a long time ago, That does not mean that they're not of ongoing relevance today. And then finally, another underlying message or another underlying point uh, that I would make, and I just touched on it a few moments ago. It's important to understand historical actors in the context of the times that they inhabited and try and avoid, first of all, approach them with some humility and understand. uh, Well, I should say that I quoted the English essayist L.P. Hartley, who said that The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And we always have to keep that in mind because it's very difficult ascribing motivations and feelings and so on to someone whose world we don't inhabit. And so I think that same standard uh, needs to apply to somebody like James Wolfe. And so to approach that with a little bit of understanding and humility. And that's what I tried to do as I transcribed the letters.
0: I think that's a very important message, that we have to understand people in their context, isn't it? It's always so difficult to do.
1: Well, for example, I mean, uh, we talked about uh, one of the remedies that, that Wolf prescribed for the health problems that he was having and his, his use of soap to cleanse the passages of his kidneys. Well, I could look at that and say, well, that's ridiculous.
0: Yes, but Larry, as you know, we had an American president prescribing soap that might cure uh, COVID. Anyway, I, I digress. I digress.
1: But in the context of the 18th century, and uh, and what I mentioned was the state of of medical knowledge and people prescribing remedies of various sorts, Wolf's views were not uncommon. Uh, they're very understandable in that context, and so I think that's something that we need to uh, to bear in mind.
0: I think it's a great message, and and really, it's the message um, that really motivates the Champlain Society. That's why we spend so much effort. Um, providing Canadians with accessible documents to their past. Larry, I want to finish off uh, by talking about you. Um, you wrote your doctoral dissertation at the Université Laval, uh, and then spent your career in the public service at the federal level, and again at the uh, at the municipal level, uh, working in the city of Toronto, which is when uh, we met, you and I. Um, you had just retired from your life in the civil service when uh, we approached you to do this project. Years later, uh, what has, I'm curious, what's been the impact of this project on your life?
1: Well, let me say first that I was really fortunate uh, over the course of my career to be able to work in the in the field of history and on behalf of national historic sites and museums uh, right across the country and so I was I was uh, incredibly fortunate to have been able to do that and so the project uh, really appealed to me and uh, it's something that I undertook with a great deal of pleasure although that's not to say that they were, There weren't moments when I wasn't ripping my hair out trying to figure out uh, you know, what a particular sentence or word might have meant in one of Wolf's, Wolf's letters. Uh, but, so, but, but apart from providing some much-needed pandemic relief, uh, because I certainly had lots of time indoors to spend on the letters, it served as a reminder of just how much I personally love history and how much I enjoy working with original documents, because as I mentioned earlier, uh, it really does transport us uh, and provide us with a window which I think allows us to better understand how we have all arrived at the places where we are now uh, as individuals and as a society and as a country. And uh, so I think that uh, the opportunity to work with the letters um, was really, really valuable in terms of continuing to educate me with respect to uh, our past and uh, why why it continues to be relevant today. And who knows? Who knows? Maybe there are going to be other projects uh, coming my way in the near future.
0: We hope so. Anyway, thank you, Larry, for, for, for doing such wonderful work with this book. And I'm sure that uh, Canadians will benefit enormously from the hard work that you, uh, you invested in transcribing these letters and, of course, in documenting in endless detail what these letters actually mean for us today and what they meant in those days, but what they mean for us today. Thank you so much for all this great work.
1: Well, thank you very much, Patrician, again. It's been an absolute pleasure to spend a few moments with you today, and I just hope uh, that I have given Wolf his due, and I hope that the volume will help people discover uh, the 18th century man behind the image that exists in the popular imagination. And uh, if if, if that's the case, uh, it'll have all been worth it. Thank you.
0: Was Larry Ostola, the editor of the 2021 volume of the Champlain Society, entitled "Your Most Obedient and Affectionate Son: James Wolfe's Letters to His Parents, 1740 to 1759." Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. Thank you also to our growing list of sponsors, including the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill Queen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to ChamplainSociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way, as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations, which always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutille, This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on August 17th, 2021 by Jessica Schmidt.